Welcome to Gita Wisdom. I'm your host, Joshua Green. Welcome, one and all. I thought as a way of starting off our discussion this evening, this is the uh, Gita Wisdom Weekly Discussion Group. This evening we'll have an hour-long conversation with Akundati. To get things started, I wanted to read for you a verse from the Bhagavad Gita. This is in the seventh chapter of Earth, Water, Fire, Ether, Mind, Intelligence, and False Ego. Altogether, these eight constitute my separated material energies. And then in the fifth verse, the next verse, he says as follows, Besides these, O mighty armed Arjuna, there is another superior energy of mine which comprises the living entities who are exploiting the resources of this material inferior nature. So here in the Gita, we have very clear indication that there is a distinction to be made between matter and consciousness as a separate non-material phenomenon, and that will be the subject of our discussion this evening. I, uh, would you all please join me in welcoming our special guest, uh, Akandidi Prabhu. Very good. That is called a um, two-dimensional standing ovation you just received. I'm very pleased to be kind of with you, and thank you for this invitation. I'm based in the UK. I've been with Krishna Consciousness now 45 years since I walked into the hallowed uh, halls of Bhaktivedanta Manor, the, the temple that uh, George Harrison gave to the movement. And uh, I was there for 20 years, uh, managed it for quite a few year, uh, of those years. And then in the last 20-odd years, I've been um, here in Wales, I was running a, a retreat centre called Buckland Hall. We played host for many, many groups of all types. So I got to mingle with many people involved in spirituality in its various forms. One of the most interesting of the events we held at uh, Buckland Hall was run by a gentleman called David Moorhouse. And he taught us uh, the process of remote viewing. And he had learned it with the CIA. He was one of their uh, psychic spies who had been recruited for this purpose. This ability that the mind has to access information, distance, and time and place. And the idea is that it is possible to access information distant in time and place simply by using the mind without any sensory or mechanical apparatus. And what it did was lead me to explore that very verse that you read, how there are these different elements, and particularly the ability of the mind to access the information that is there in the physical systems of the world around us. Here we have a system that actually reveals the nature of consciousness as being something other than the neural activity of the brain. And we're using it for warfare. Why aren't we using this to enlighten the world? I mean, this, is, this is a real moment here for us in, in Gita Wisdom after all these years. And we're talking with someone who has had a direct experience of something that cannot be fully described by empiric scientific observation and uh, experiment. Am I correct about that? You're correct. Um, And that's the difficulty that the physicalist notion that we are simply this body and that consciousness is a product of the activity of the brain 
no one has a theory of how the brain could produce the phenomenon of consciousness, particularly as we understand it in terms of my sense of my own existence. And I receive information from the world that's all processed in my mind. And I am the person who is experiencing those thoughts, those sensory impressions, those ideas, those memories. They're all content, but I am the person experiencing them. So currently there isn't even a theory that is generally accepted as to how that phenomenon of subjective experience and sentience could arise from the activities of the brain. Now, of course, we're getting right to the essence of everything. I mean, the entire structure of the bhakti theology and the teachings of the Gita rests on this one hypothesis, this one idea, that life itself is not generated by matter, that consciousness does not arise through some interaction of particles and wave functions and material forces, but it's some other different kind of phenomenon, separate and apart from matter. What, uh, let me just get right to the chase here. What, what would be different about the world? Let's say that the experiences you've had with uh, remote viewing or perhaps um, other experiments that might come online gave credence, gave sufficient backbone to the idea of matter as something non-material what, what, what difference would that make in the world? I think there is a big difference in our outlook on the world. You know, what is my purpose in life? And what happens at this thing we call the end of life? If we believe that simply life is this thing between when we are born and when we die, we will live in a particular way. We will set our goals, our ambitions, and we could just think, I need to get as much as I can because I only live once. I better make the most of it. And I think there's a danger if everyone is thinking along those lines. You've got a society simply based on competing for limited resources, limited facilities. I remember reading as a a school kid that society based on competition simply leads to war. That is the natural product of competition. Well, you and I have had this conversation uh, frequently in the past, and it always, for me, raises a very frustrating issue, namely, are we preaching to the choir, so to speak? I mean, the, the idea of life as something non-material appeals to the romantic part of our nature. It appeals to the, 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 the part of us that, that uh, responds to, to myth and, and, and to the supernatural. And that seems to be at the very opposite end of the spectrum from the part of us that's rational, that's logical, that demands proof. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I know from the, uh, let's call them the physicalist scientists I've had a chance to speak with, that whenever this issue comes up, there's almost a kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of a static response. Yeah. If we open that door, Akundity, you know, to I what cannot be proven. I mean, isn't that risky? Oh, well, I would put it the other way around, actually. It's really important to make the point that establishing the nature of consciousness as being non-neural, something that is not a phenomenon of the brain, that is not the fanciful, whimsical, new-agey, woo-woo idea. 
actually we can philosophically establish that as being the intellectual and rational point of view. There is more logic that um, consciousness cannot be produced from the brain than can establish that how it might have arisen. So at the moment, I think the rational view would be to say that after all our efforts in neuroscience and philosophy and biology, we cannot come up with any explanation. We cannot find anything within the brain that allows us to make the statement that consciousness is produced from the brain. What, what are the latest thoughts in this arena? I know that David Chalmers and others have uh, kind of grabbed the spotlight in this area. What, what seem, what's the state of the art in, in the field of consciousness studies from what you've seen? Well, I think that um, there has been quite a change in recent decades. And David Chalmers was in 1904 when he made um, his presentation to a conference on consciousness studies and really challenged the scientists and the philosophers, you're here discussing consciousness, but until you deal with how we experience the qualia, the qualities of our mental content, then you haven't got an explanation for consciousness. You're dealing with the easy problems. You're dealing with psychology. You're dealing with neurology. <laughs> the difficult or hard problem of consciousness is subjective experience and particularly qualitative subjective experience. And so instead of talking about the hard problem of subjective experience, the idea was we'll, we'll just focus in on the easy bits and say that's what we believe consciousness to be. That Chalmers and others challenged. So it's this conflating of language, information processing, experience, thought, mental processes. You're saying that the tendency has been to kind of use all of this terminology interchangeably, and none of it really explains that first-person, irreducible, me, subjective knowledge of what's happening to me in my life. That's, that's right. So then we went through periods where we said consciousness was uh, an epiphenomenon, an emergent property. And that sounded uh, scientific, but <laughs> it doesn't mean anything, you know. What is an emergent property of uh, the brain? How, how does that come about? What is an epiphenomenon? There is a group that is now emerging that's gone through the epiphenomenon period. They've gone through the Daniel Dennett denying period. The ideas that are gaining traction are panpsychism. What is panpsychism? But panpsychism comes from the conclusion that we cannot find consciousness not only within the brain, but we cannot seem to reduce it to any of the known properties of physics. So it's not only a non-neural issue, it's a non-physical property. And therefore we have to postulate that maybe consciousness is its own fundamental type of property of reality. So the idea is that... appropriated consciousness into their arsenal of vocabulary. Yeah, they basically said consciousness is non-physical. Oh, that's not doesn't sound right. Let's call it all physical then. But um, at, as yet, panpsychism is still not a fully coherent model for consciousness. So it has its difficulty. But it has, it's opening the door for people to at least be in be able to be allowed to explore ideas that don't just say consciousness is a product of the brain and of physics. And that's a very big door that's opened. 
Let, let me come back just for a moment to uh, that rather provocative opening to our discussion this evening, where, where you talked about this experience you'd had of remote viewing. It strikes me that, you know, you know scratch uh, a, a, a hard scientist and you find someone who's afraid of the power of faith to wreak havoc in the world. And I wonder whether they're not with some reason. I mean, if we look at the history of humanity, people with this kind of irrational belief in transcendent realities haven't always been uh, the the best friends of a progressive society. Irrational beliefs are certainly problematic and do lead to, uh, to all sorts of problems. And I believe that the irrational belief that consciousness is a product of the brain is one such troublemaking belief system that is wreaking havoc. We should really just be objective and look at the evidence and deal with it logically. And if it happens to support a position of theism, well, then so be it. But there's something that I I instinctively almost feel a little, um, I pull back. I want to be able to make certain decisions predicated on a logical assumption that A leads to B and B leads to C. The world is such an unpredictable place. That little bit of predictability is very reassuring for me. I depend on science. How, how do you deal with that very natural impulse to, for people to shy away from the very thing that I think your Atma paradigm, paradigm is attempting to promote? Well, you're right. I want to promote rationality. I want to promote intellectual inquiry. I want to help people on their search. I do not want people just to accept pat answers. And the interesting thing, I think, with consciousness is that anyone who has delved into consciousness as an explorer knows that you need humility. You are going to discover aspects of yourself and of your relationship to the world and what may lie even beyond all of that that you could never have known about. And the more you know, the more you begin to realize, wow, we are part of such a big, big picture. I have to retain my sense of humility and you know, awe in the face of what I'm learning and what I'm experiencing. Well, that, think- that's very challenging. That, that's a wonderful takeaway for me. What I, what I hear you saying is that the, the universe withholds its deepest secrets from those who simply wish to understand them logically that there's something more out there and you have to be open to taking that risk. What I believe is that if you want to follow a spiritual path, please base it on something that is solid, rational. What can we all agree on as the starting point for our discourse? And that is, I exist. I know I exist. I'm feeling stuff. I'm experiencing stuff. I am the I you know, of my uh, life events. I'm the subject of all of this. I know I exist. I am conscious. I have a physicist in my family with whom I often have discussions like this. And um, the answer that I've had most recently from him is that we know that the brain is capable of responding to stimuli outside itself. It's doing that all the time. Right. What we're discovering more recently is that the brain can also respond to its own behavior internally. And that at a certain point, that inner response is what we call self-awareness. And that if we follow the physics down deep enough, 
we'll find that consciousness is this process, this process of being self-aware of how we respond to the world around us. And I'm not quite sure I knew how to answer that. It sounded like um, boxed into a corner. I wonder if you could help me out here. How would you have uh, responded? Yeah, I think what your brother is referring to are the theories which fall into the category of higher order theories. That there is thinking and then you can think about your thinking. Now, that is an example of trying to reduce consciousness down to this aspect of self-reflection. What is not being dealt with is the nature of our experience qualitatively. What I experience isn't just thoughts, but I experience the qualities of, for instance, visual um, sensory um, uh, impressions. I experience colors and forms. Where in the brain is the picture of the world that I am seeing? It only exists in our brain in electrical data, but I experience it qualitatively, not as data, not as electricity, but as the qualities of colors and forms and movement. And that is the inexplicable bit. So there's always some little aspect of your psychology, such as self-reflection, that can be explained you know, in terms of psychology and your neuroscience, but not the hard stuff. And that's why we have to keep reminding the neuroscientists, be humble. You're doing great on many other aspects of your neuroscience and your study. But don't tell us that you've cracked the hard problem of consciousness yet. Some people think that all scientists think consciousness is physical, but there are a few who think otherwise. For example, Nobel Prize winning Austrian physicist Erwin Schrodinger writes in his book from 1956, Mind and Matter, quote, Consciousness cannot be accounted for in physical terms. Unfortunately, in the world of physics and neuroscience, it has become very difficult for many scientists to actually reveal their beliefs about consciousness, you know, their conviction that it may not be physical. And even those who are studying it from a physicalist point of view have had trouble. There's the the story of Christoph Koch when he um, told his tutor that he was going to work with Francis Crick, um, and he was going to work on consciousness. His tutor said, no, you're mad. That's academic suicide to work on consciousness. Mm -hmm. Open that door. Let the world know that you actually want to consider, even never mind believing in, but that you're willing to consider the notion of consciousness as something non-material, and you're jeopardizing your credibility, your funding, your tenure, uh, your publishability, your standing in the scientific community. I believe it was some, somewhere in the 1970s, perhaps, that this whole notion of science as actually a, a social construct was, was brought into question, that what is considered scientific is what the scientific community blesses as scientific. Does that not concern you? It does concern me because it, it definitely is not an even playing field for research. And the stigma of, as you said, even considering the idea that we might look at consciousness as non-neural can get you into trouble and can mean you're not going to be published and you could lose your job. There's a lot of things like that. I, I think the, um, my, I'm a great fan of science. I actually am. I come from a scientific family. It was my training through school and so on. So I kind of really believe in the process, the methodology of science. 
it's probably the most effective means for humanity to gain information and an understanding of the workings of the material world around us that humanity has ever come up with. It is a brilliant system. But its methodology works only within a certain confines. It's put a boundary around what it can explore. And mm-hmm. it's sacrificed scope of knowledge for, for greater certainty within boundaries. And that's fine, as long as we know that's what it does. But what it shouldn't do is then for those who are within those boundaries to make pronouncements about the stuff that they cannot connect with through the methodology, that they cannot explore. Don't make grandiose pronouncements. Right. Because you're straying out of your your zone. Uh, Those kinds of strident declarations of having a handle on truth are as uh, distasteful coming from the religious community as they are coming from the scientific community. You put me in mind of, of another presentation that I attended a few years ago where the, the subject was creativity in the brain. And there was a panel of people and, and one creative, Bill T. Jones, one of our great uh, <laughs> dance choreographers. And um, Jones started the session by saying, I've given myself the following assignment without moving from within one square foot I will have this cellist, and it's wonderful cellist on stage with him, play, and I have to invent a dance to the music without repeating the same position at all. And so the cellist began, and Bill T. Jones began this amazing dance and uh, received uh, warm applause, and then sat down. And the conversation then veered into what happens in the brain and there were projections and graphs and, and, and videos and, and, and computer graphic representations of a creative impulse in the brain and red zones were lighting up and blue zones were lighting up. And um, Jones was fidgeting on stage. He was obviously becoming very uncomfortable. And he finally spoke up and he said, look, let me tell you what my concern is here. He said, my concern is that someday if we allow ourselves to reduce life and creativity exclusively to the workings of dendrons and neurons and, and, and brain chemistry and different kinds of physical functions. The day may arrive when people say, you know what, let's, let's invent a dance. And they sit down at a computer and they type away and they come up with something and they call it a, a new dance. And he says, my concern there is that when I try to create something new in dance, the sensation that I feel, the only way I can describe it for you is by saying that it's spiritual. And the other people on that stage who were all recognized scientists did something that I thought, thought was absolutely horrible. They didn't bother to respond to him at all. They ignored him as if he wasn't even there. And I felt so bad for him. There, mm-hmm. there seems to be... I guess I'm asking for your impressions here. There seems to be something threatening to uh, a certain quadrant of the science community that these ideas, the willingness to step outside what we can uh, experiment, what we can prove, what we can test by theories and, and, and do the math and so on, there's something inherently dangerous in that and it's to be shunned. If that's true, if that's the case, it's absolutely tragic. And I'm wondering if you've come up against it. Yeah, I think what you're kind of revealing through that story is the nature of physicalism 
not just as a philosophical approach that is used to interpret science, but it's physicalism as a belief system. And the question, the only question between ourselves and, say, a physicalist is this. Do we believe that the absolute source of all existence is sentient or non-sentient in Earth? That's the only question that humans have to answer. Okay. Is the absolute source conscious or not conscious? Because we have consciousness defined in the Shastras as Sat, Chit, Ananda, as being the combination of Sat, being, Chit, knowing, and Ananda, which means loving. Okay. It means enjoyment, but actually the only and the, the most pure form of enjoyment is love. So as we, come, as we come to the end of our time here this evening, we're just dangling our toes in the most exciting part of this ocean of discussion about the nature of consciousness, namely consciousness leading to love. Uh, what a beautiful and tantalizing place to leave off. Uh, Kanade, I hope you'll agree to come back so that we can continue the discussion with you. I feel like we're just getting started. This has been the most uh, eye-opening hour with you. I think I speak on behalf of everyone here and extending our thanks and appreciation for your time. Thank you all so much. And to all of you who have joined us this evening for our weekly Gita uh, Wisdom discussion, thank you for your time, your company, your friendship, your participation, and look forward to seeing you all again next week for our next Gita Wisdom talk. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to Gita Wisdom. For more information, please visit gitawisdom.org.